The Biscuit is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. I believe so much in the power of art. I've seen the power of art. I've felt the power of art. And so I'm really inspired by social change. And I'm really inspired by how impactful and powerful and transformative art is and can be. Hello, Biscuit listeners, and welcome to another freshly baked edition of the Biscuit Podcast, celebrating Charlotte's creativity every single week. I'm your host, Andy Goh. On today's podcast, we've got two segments for you that you're going to want to listen to. In the first segment, we profile Shan Wallace, a photographer from Baltimore who is in residency at the roll-up until November. In a new monthly segment you'll hear in the first episode of each month, We'll check in with Shan to see how she's spending her time in the Queen City. We'll get to know her, her art, and the impact she's making in our community. In the second segment, writer Jonathan McFadden sits down with the Levine Museum of the New South staff historian Dr. Willie Griffin for the first in a three-part series diving into Charlotte's history of gentrification, how it affects us today, and how we'll deal with it in the future. Let's take a listen. So I'm going to do the same. I'm going to do the same assignment that you all are doing with a portrait, oh, something colorful, an object. I'm a visual artist and photographer and educator, freedom fighter from Baltimore, East Baltimore. I love my city so much. My city has raised me. It is why I am who I am and why I'm the way that I am. I didn't go to art school, but I went to Bowie State University, HBCU in PG County, Maryland. And I um, graduated with a journalism degree. But art has been a lifesaver for me. It's allowed me to embody consciousness and it's allowed me to embody my goddess self, but it's also allowed me to make a positive impact on society. It's allowed me to be really impactful and active in my community and black communities around the world. Um, I believe so much in the power of art. I've seen the power of art. I've felt the power of art. And so I'm really inspired by social change. And I'm really inspired by how impactful and powerful and transformative art is and can be. Shane, can you tell us a little bit about what we're doing here today? Yes. So, the second class, um, we're going on just a photo walk. We have our cameras. They're set to the settings. They have their prompts. And so, we're just out in the world. Hopefully, we meet some people and have some interesting conversations and see some things, some objects or some faces and places that call us where we can take some photographs. And so their assignments are while we're out here, grab some photographs of things that you like, you're interested in, but make sure that from different angles, two or more, you do a portrait, 
take a photo of an object and something colorful. And what kind of what kind of students are you teaching today? What kind of students? So these are middle school students. All of them are primarily from the west side of Charlotte. Some of them are friends. Some of them go to the same school. Um, some of them are just meeting for the second time, first time. And so it's a different variety and different colors of students here, which is really great. Everyone gets a great photography experience and gets the same sort of knowledge. I didn't really know much about Charlotte outside of the CIAA tournament being here, outside of some personal stories and experiences I've heard from my friends. Charlotte wasn't, it's never come across my radar as an artist. And so to be able to come to Charlotte and be at the roll up, it's certainly a drastic change than what I'm used to, especially being in Baltimore. All right, I got my first one at, a, at, an, at one angle. And I can attest to Charlotte being supportive of me. Hand. Everyone has been really warm and welcoming. Um, I just opened a show at the new gallery and there were so many people from Charlotte who attended, who engaged with me, engaged with the work. Um, we're very curious about my plans here in Charlotte and my transition from being from Baltimore, but coming from LA to uh, Charlotte. Where you are. This is my first angle right here. I'm teaching classes at the Lauren Academy Mondays and Wednesdays two classes, Photography 101, and it's great because none of them have really any photography experience and they're using professional cameras. So it feels really great to give them the tools that they need and those tools being very reflective of tools they will use in the future. But it feels good to give them the tools that they need so they could, you know, aspire to be professional photographers or also to have that skill. Don't uh, hesitate going back and deleting some that you don't like or checking them out. The goal isn't to get 100 photographs. Well, I have a lot of goals that I want to accomplish in Charlotte. I want to make sure that I get to know Camp Green, but also Charlotte as a city. I want to hear more personal stories about Charlotte 15, 20 years ago. I want to hear more about it's change and how it's growing and how there's no parking. I wanna hear so many more oral histories around Charlotte and around North Carolina. And so this is a way for me to learn more about the South. I believe that this, me visiting, oh, it's a truck going by. I feel like me visiting Charlotte, it's another truck, God damn. I feel like me visiting Charlotte is like my first step to spending more time in the South, which I'm really excited about. My second goal is to ensure that these students at the Lorian Academy get a really great art photography education. I'm hoping that at the end of the session, I have helped birth some photographers and some artists um, who want to document their communities or who want to, you know, provide photography as a service. I'm hoping that a couple of them stay connected to me and stay connected to photography. And so my goal with the archive is at Beatty's Forest Library to 
photograph as many people as I can and give them copies and copies that has um, that copies that live on. I'll have a copy, the roll up, I have a copy, and so the archive will be accessible, and also it will be in people's homes, and that's what that's what matters to me, ensuring that people have images of themselves and that they have that experience, and so that's already started for me, but as I um, as time progresses during my time at the roll up. I'm sure that archive will just grow and grow and grow and take many turns and that will change. But I'm certainly, that's my, one of my biggest goals is to build a silent and critical archive of black people in Charlotte. Shane, what do you enjoy about uh, teaching kids? Well, it's like, to me, one of the most efficient and impactful ways of giving back. It's like you're there, you're in control of the information that they're receiving, the experience they're having. There isn't a third party. We could kind of learn together, experiment together, have an experience together um, while also getting to know each other. I think the biggest thing is just giving these young ones an example of what positive role models could look like, mentors could look like, um, careers and professions in the arts. Um, and so for me, that's what it, that's really what it's about. It's just being an example, but also being able to be involved and meet them where they are. Cause essentially that's what I'm doing, meeting them where they are. I look at my art, especially my photographs as archives and documents that serve as a testament to black life, black people's experiences, our identities, our shared narratives and stories from how we congregate to how we mourn our rituals from what it looks like for black people to strive and survive while fighting for their life and standing strong against institutional or individual forces my work my lens is very black my lens is very personal and my goal is to not leave anybody out. I think about the history of photography and I think about its importance to black history. And we know a lot about black history, especially through photographs. Photographs was a way to communicate what was happening here and there. It was a way for black people to show their dignity. It was a way for us to really have a true understanding on what was happening in black communities throughout our country. And so photography and portraiture especially has always been important to the legacy and histories of black people. I'm really inspired by black people and blackness. It sounds pretty simple, but I grew up in a very black city, a city that's segregated. Um, I was taught early on to love my blackness and to embrace it. But I also was very aware of, as a young black girl who's transitioning to a black woman, I learned what I've inherited as a black person. And nonetheless, I love my blackness and I love everyone else's blackness. And so it feels good to be able to make art about 
us and make art about being black. So tell me about some of the photographs you've gotten so far. Okay, so we got... Let's stop right here. We got the fire department. Okay. DQ. That's on back there behind DQ there. Okay. More pictures. And so with my collage work, I also want folks to see this connectedness that I talk about, but more creatively. During my process of creating collages and photo montages, I create these black figures and these black scenes, but I use very small details of places I've been. And so I can create a black figure and use the lips from a woman who's in South Africa, use the legs and the tennis shoes of a guy that's in Baltimore, to use the arms and the shirt from a young woman who is in Charlotte. And so I try to creatively um, use my intuition to connect these small details that create these figures that represent us all and that can speak for us all. So next week, yes, I'll be giving you our presentations and you all will be showing the class and myself the images you got today. We won't be selecting favorites. We'll just go through the images as a class. So if you have images on your... In February 2019, 120 businesses, most of them Black-owned, were told they had to vacate their office space at the City North Business Center at 1801 North Tryon Street in the Lockwood neighborhood. The business owners were told the complex had been sold to a developer and they had two months to vacate. My name is Jonathan McFadden, a local writer and journalist here in Charlotte, and in April I wrote about this displacement in The Biscuit. Over the next three weeks, we're going to share a conversation I had with Dr. Willie Griffin, staff historian at Levine Museum of the New South. We'll talk about what gentrification is, what it's not, and how it's been part of Charlotte's past, present, and will be part of its future. Let's take a listen. All right, Dr. Griffin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We are very excited to have this conversation. Um, you are no stranger to Charlotte's history, so obviously you are, were the perfect person to invite to the table. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of your connection with the city? Um, yeah, so I'm originally from Charlotte, born and raised. Um, I was born um, during a period of, um, I guess, change in, in Charlotte. I was a, a child of busing. So I grew up on the west side of Charlotte, Lincoln Heights community, historically black community off of Bettisford Road in LaSalle. Um, and by the time I started school, busing was in full effect. Um, so I was bused um, across town to um, 45 minutes each way um, to Idlewild Elementary um, initially. Um, after Idlewild, I attended um, a neighborhood school, um, Lincoln Heights Elementary, and then I went back um, across town to McClintock and uh, eventually graduated and attended and graduated from East Mecklenburg High School. Wow, a lot of yeah. mileage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, t tell me a little bit about your professional background and how it led you back here. Um, so I, after I graduated, I had always had a love for history. Um, and so I, I attended Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. 
um, and went with the intention of majoring in history and, and eventually going to law school. Um, but while I was there, um, I got an opportunity to intern with the um, what was then the Journal of Negro History. It's now the Journal of African American History, the um, journal started by Carter G. Woodson. And so um, in that experience, um, I, I sort of was immersed in a lot of history, um, African American history that I previously had, had been unaware of. You know, you don't get that much African American history in high school. Um, and, and not only you know, just general African-American history, you go to a place like Morehouse, you're steeped in the civil rights history of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and so by the time I graduated, I had developed um, an interest um, just in general African-American history, but the civil rights um, scholarship was changing at the time. Um, and you know, um, all of the history in the civil rights movement up until that point, the late 90s, it was told from a top-down perspective, mm -hmm. um, usually um, from the large figures, major events, um, what the federal government had done to make things better um, for African Americans in society. But the um, scholarship was changing. Um, people were beginning to look, or scholars were beginning to look at um, local movements, what was going on on the ground beneath that. Um, and so um, Charlotte was a city that I knew very little about beyond the Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg school busing case. And I wanted to know more about what was going on. And so um, I began um, a career in, in graduate school in Baltimore at Morgan State. Um, university where I finished, I did my master's degree um, in African American studies and history. Um, and I returned to Charlotte for a few years after I completed my, um, my master's thesis. I looked at the local civil rights movement here from 1940 to 1963. I was trying to um, push that timeline back mm -hmm. beyond um, what the traditional civil rights um, um, you know, history tells us that it began in 54, 55. Um, and after I finished, I came back to Charlotte, I taught for two years at West Charlotte, um, and then I taught for a year at Johnson C. Smith before I decided to go back and get my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. How did your educational experience frame how you thought about your home? Did it, did it change how you thought about your home? Uh, I guess, yeah, it did. I mean, uh, my educational experience mostly it didn't really begin to change until I got to, um, in Baltimore, to Morgan State, as I said, the scholarship was changing. When you're in undergrad, you're mostly just teaching, I mean, you're learning what the professors teach you. You know, you're not really dealing um, in the scholarship, how scholars write, how historians write, how they use sources. Um, you're really learning content um, in, in undergrad. But when you go to graduate school, you're learning um, how um, historians um, decide to choose a topic, how they use the scholarship, I mean, how they use the content um, and how they use the archives, how they use um, sources. And so it was then that I, I began to think about what scholars were doing in terms of, of producing new scholarship. And as I said, uh, there was a, this was the period of local movement studies. Um, mm -hmm. There were um, studies going into Mississippi and, and studying what, what um, African Americans were doing on the ground before Martin Luther King got into these spaces. And so I began to ask these same questions, you know, um, what was happening in Charlotte? I didn't know much about um, my own hometown beyond Swan um, versus Charlotte Mecklenburg. Um, and the, you know, the school bus busing case, which I was a part of, you know, I remember being bused across um, the, the city, but how did that come about? What led to that? I mean, those were, um, were parts of the history that I didn't know much about. So if, if you can, in just a few sentences, can you give us a kind of overview of what was happening in Charlotte during that time? 
prior to the civil rights, but prior to Swan, well, prior I, to Swan, prior to Swan. I mean, so what I learned is that um, Charlotte had one of the most successful local civil rights movements in the country, but yet we knew very little about mm. it. Um, the national traditional narratives um, tended to focus on the sensationalized history, where you know water hoses, dogs, and massive resistance. Um, but it, Charlotte had a very sophisticated network of activists coming from all walks of life, and um, there was very very little had been written about it. Mm -hmm. And so um, that that began my my um, next. You know, that was my that became my mission in life to try to uncover that and write about that history. So speaking of Charlotte's history and speaking of, you know, the things that have been happening in the city before the civil rights movement, during and even after, mm -hmm. you know, obviously the topic we're talking about today is gentrification. Right. Can you give us kind of a, a deep dive into what that actually is, what it actually means and what it looks like? So, I mean, gentrification is, is, has become a buzzword, so mm -hmm. to speak, you know, and um and. <laughs> and I don't think there is really an accepted answer for what it is, um, but but the way that I see gentrification is is that it is a um, usually it takes place in neighborhoods that have been abandoned, not abandoned, but overlooked. They have been neglected um, for by the city for development. Um, there's no public money going into these areas to develop the areas. Um, traditionally, they have been. Um, um, populated by um, by lower classes of people, um, mostly African-American, but in some cases, um, particularly in the northeastern corridor, you'll find um, poor whites who have been in these places, living in these neighborhoods. And so, and once these neighborhoods have, have you know, really um, begun to deteriorate um, and um, with usually um, economic development or, or, or economic upswing in terms of the economy picks up and, and these cities become popular, um, more people are moving into these cities, migrating into these cities. And when they migrate, it's usually um, people from outside who have not been residents traditionally of the city. They'll move into these old neighborhoods because of the, um, the homes um, have been, um, um, they're nicer homes. They're mm -hmm. traditionally built, um, been well built. And so um, because they've, they've been neglected and people who have been living in these residents haven't had the funds to, um, to refurbish their homes, um, you have entire swaths of neighborhoods that have just fallen into disrepair. And so those people who are coming into these new places, um, they have um, access to cash flow, um, and they're able to go in and they see um, potential. Um, and, and they usually target these neighborhoods that, um, based on location, um, um, proximity to um, 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 more vibrant parts of town, uptown, downtown, whatever you have, you know, so. What are the consequences for communities who are being, that are being displaced? Because I think we hear a lot about people being displaced, and I don't know if people maybe understand some of the, the actual, like, difficulties and challenges that people may face when they're being removed from their homes or neighborhoods? I think the consequences, um, just, you know, most people are displaced. You know, they, they um, are forced to find other places to live. Um, oftentimes, this, they have to deal with um, lack of transportation. Um, they have to move further away from their jobs. Um, they um, sometimes, in, in a lot of cases, they may have owned a, a home from you know that has been passed down over the over generations from family, um, but they'll lose ownership in, in homes because they can't afford to pay taxes in these, in these as the new neighborhoods begin to pick up as they begin to rebuild and um, taxes are raised as new homes are um, as the prices are, are elevated in the neighborhood. So I mean I think there are a number of things. Um, 
education. Um, you lose businesses mm -hmm. in, in these old neighborhoods. Um, um, so, I mean, I think there are a number of things that we just, you know, are, are learning, starting to learn about. And, and I want to get back to businesses in a few okay. minutes, but I also wanted to talk about upward mobility and mm -hmm. what and how right. that's impacted because we hear that a lot right now after mm -hmm. that 2014 study mm -hmm. uh, that was commissioned by Harvard showing that Charlotte is 50 out of 50 of right. the largest cities in the country in terms, yeah, in terms of upward mobility. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've had task forces develop, we've had meetings, we've had reports commissioned, all these things, and yet we still are wrestling with these issues. So what kind of effect does gentrification or new development in an area and the displacement of a people from an area have on upward mobility? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, 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 was, I had a conversation with a young lady today who is a first-generation college graduate who um, first lived in, in Brook Hill. Um, and, you know, Brook Hill is one of those places that is now um, on, on the dockets for being um, mm -hmm. displaced. You know, the city is looking at that property because of its view of the skyline. And, and you know, it's going to become a perfect place to right. build condos. Um, she left Brook Hill and then she went to Cherry. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we, so, you know, and Dang. so and, and she's yeah. a first generation college graduate. Um, and so um, she has, has was fortunate enough to make it through college. And now she's looking for a job. But she also has a child, you know, and so she. She can't find a job, but she has been displaced over and over and over and over. So these are the kinds of people who um, who often get overlooked. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so she should be um, there should be some kind of um, efforts by the city or government, some places that she can go to help find a job, to help her find a job, to help her um, deal with um, having, you know, having to 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 deal with childcare, having to deal with a, a number of different things. I mean, so. I don't think that that's the, the she's not the sort of the prime um, you know, example, but I think there are a lot of people like her who get left behind, who are making all the efforts, making all the right moves, trying to continue education, um, becoming the first in college to graduate. And um, because her family was never able to establish any kind of real home ownership or own any property, um, she doesn't have the family um, support that other people who may not, who have, who have lived on, who may not have been li living in these kinds of neighborhoods that have been targeted for gentrification. Um, and, you know, so I, I don't know, that's a hard question to answer, but I, I think that, um, that people are affected in ways that we just don't think about it. Mm -hmm. I think gentrification affects a lot of people who lived in these um, neighborhoods. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but just for anyone who doesn't know, upward mobility refers to the chances of a child or someone who's born into poverty scaling the socioeconomic ladder right. and escaping poverty um, over their lifetime. Right. The, the likelihood of you being able to um, rise up out of a class that you were born into are, are next to um, zero you know, right. because of um, the way the economy goes and the way that um, you know, development and, and, and gentrification has affected um, these communities. Thank you, everyone. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, join us next week as we talk a little bit more about the causes of gentrification and shifting the narrative in Charlotte. Thanks again to Jonathan McFadden, Dr. Willie Griffin, and Shan Wallace for speaking with us. But most importantly, thank you, the listener, for tuning into the Biscuit Podcast. That's all the time we have for today's episode of The Biscuit. Remember to subscribe to The Biscuit Podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review so that other creative charlatans can hear about us. 
or better yet, just tell your friends. Finally, get the scoop on Charlotte's creative scene delivered straight to your inbox every week by subscribing to the Biscuit email newsletter. Do that now at BiscuitCLT.com. The Biscuit Podcast was produced by Tim Miner, Matt Olin, and Andy Goh. Music by Harvey Cummings.